All right. Uh, we are in a series I'm calling The Struggle with Secularism. Been addressing this battle with secularism, which is largely, to, to some extent, replaced the battle with paganism in the modern and postmodern world. The secular battle, I think, is a false dichotomy, which posits a God zone, which is the domain of religion. Notice religion, not the domain of God, because that's kind of how the world sees that. Uh, and a n- no God zone, which is the domain of the secular. In other words, God's not involved here. God doesn't exist here. God's not part of this. Um, now, last week I explained that the secular grew out of the religious in the arts and media and schools and health and parenting and marriage as the modern secular worldview emerged from the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and the modern science movement. And over time, more and more of our everyday reality became secular and the religious then split into two, liberal and conservative, which retreated from the ever-growing secular into less and less of everyday life and experience. The result is that many believers only think in terms of who's saved and who's not saved, uh, what I call is you is or is you ain't God's baby, right? And then conformity to a general secular and sacred distinctions of the present culture. In other words, what happens in most religious people's thinking, because we are so a part of our culture, we're so a part of this world that has this secular religious dichotomy, that we think of salvation as the kingdom to come, and I'm saved, I'm in the book, are you in the book? And yeah, there's some things that we'll gather once in a while, but most of our life is secular. Most of our life is, uh, uh, is, would run uh, pretty well without anything. And I, I've even talked about this in churches. I've said uh, for years, I've gotten in trouble for it, but I've said it anyway, that God could have a heart attack and die. Now, he can't do that, okay? But if God had a heart attack and died, most churches would go on exactly the way they have because they're not functioning in the presence and the knowledge of God. They're functioning in the routine of religion. And while religion can be a bad thing or a good thing, when it becomes a substitute for practicing the presence of God, it's a very bad thing. And it's a category that the Bible actually talks about it, uh, talks about. So I want to address that. So I explained that the struggle for Messianic Jews and for Judeo-Christians like ourselves is to regain the biblical worldview, which is a perspective that God is transcendent. He's outside of this creation. He is independent of the creation in some sense, and yet he's imminent in that he is present and active in all aspects of the creation. There is no no no-God zone. There is no secular. That secular notion is a concept of those who don't believe in God and want to take that which is attributed to God and put it into more and more narrow, narrow compartments. So, I suggested that we need to get back to using biblical categories. And those categories have to be part of our thoughts and our experience. Now, the danger here is the problem of learning. 
I start most classes, I didn't used to, but now I start classes with a little explanation of what learning is. Uh, because the educational process, for the most part, is a kind of a binge and purge process with short-term memory. You cram something into your short-term memory, you spew it back on a test, and it never transfers to long-term memory. And people think that they learn because they got a good grade. Using They're exercising the short-term memory like crazy and not doing the long-term memory at all. Uh, and that's why students can actually study seriously for a test, pass the test the next day and the next week, not even remember anything about the test. But they can watch a movie last night and they can tell everybody about the movie and they didn't study at all. It's not that the long-term memory isn't working. Education has learned to, to bypass it. So I say to people, follow what I'm going to say, A, B, C, D, and they all say E. And I said, the American flag is red, white, and blue. They know, they know that. Then I ask them what the first chapter of the book was, and I get the deer in the headlight look. Because they read it, but they didn't retain it. Learning is reten retention of stuff. And so we, if we're going to learn biblical categories, we have to somehow get them experientially into our life so that they, they are retained in our life and we automatically think in those terms. So I asked you to do something, and I know at least one person did uh, because my wife talked to me about it. And uh, I asked you to identify those things that were holy in your life Look for the things that are, and I use the term unholy, that which violates holiness. And then look for ways in which you can bring the knowledge of God back into secular aspects of your life. Um, now, I hope you tried to do that because the goal was to get you to do something experientially. I'm going to talk more about that today as we look specifically at the biblical categories and particularly some categories that for us are difficult because we don't think using those categories uh, very often, and they are tied to words that we have very different meaning uh, in that context. So, I want to identify and explain the biblical categories which must be in our worldview and our experience if we're going to pass this faith and this way of life to our children and to our converts. The categories of Judaism and Christianity are based on the biblical text and then discussed through religious traditions, which we call denominations. I can't address those variations. I can't even get into the detail of these categories today, though I will suggest some parts of that. But I want to give us the broad categories uh, for us to begin to talk about, think about, and to identify that in our experience. So... Uh, what are the biblical categories uh, that we need? Now, I'm not talking about all of them. For example, there is a biblical category of that which is seen and that which is unseen. That which is unseen is eternal. That which is seen is temporal. So there's those kinds of categories that are part of worldview. But these are very important ones because the commandments make use of these categories a great deal. And you won't understand the commandments if you don't understand the categories that they're addressing. So the first one is life and death. We talk about that a lot. Uh, life and death. 
And the Bible talks about those as a primary category. Another primary category is good and evil, uh, which are juxtaposed to each other. Then there is holy and common. I talked about that a little last week. I want to address that more this week. And clean and unclean. Okay, So life and death, good and evil, holy and common, clean and unclean. And God establishes these categories in the Torah and through the Torah into the experience of His people so that they would make these distinctions. Now you might say, well, how do you know that? Okay, don't take my word for it. Let's ask Moses. All right? So Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're about to go into the book of Deuteronomy in our lexical reading, so uh, here we go. Chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, verse 15. God says, See, I have set before you today life, Chaim, and prosperity, and death, uh, Maveth, and adversity. Life and death. All through the scriptures, life and death are categories that are to be maintained as distinct And they have all kinds of implications in that context. And so the idea here is that God has set up this notion of life and death, good and evil. You see the words there, prosperity and adversity, if you're using a New American Standard. The words are actually good and evil. Good being tov, like mazel tov, right, mazel tov, and Uh, evil being Ra. So what it's really saying is, I've said before you, life and good and death and evil. Now, some of these categories, good and evil, life and death, overlap. They connect. But they're not completely the same. And I'll talk about how they go together, but it's easier to learn them as separate categories in that context. So, We've talked about those. You should be pretty familiar with those. Uh, We talk about the way of life and the way of death, right? In terms of uh, the pathway of walking towards life, walking towards death. We talk about doing what is good versus doing what is evil. And those are usually associated with the second five of uh, of the Ten Commandments in that context. Now, I want you to look at some other explanations of categories. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. Uh, We get this same thing. God is uh, talking to them about some context. I'll get to those later. But he says in verse 10, So as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane. Now the word profane there, the Hebrew word, uh, the word for holy uh, and the word for profane are... Again, one of these categories. The word profane is probably not a good word for us. Uh, because we have a tendency to use it as a negative. So we almost see this as a parallel between good and evil. And it's not. It's the idea of the common. The mundane. Uh, and we'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But he says uh, there's a distinction between the holy and the profane or the common and between the clean and the unclean. 
so as to teach the sons of Israel the statutes which Moses had spoken through Moses. You have to understand these distinctions if you're going to understand those commandments. Uh, and then one more passage just so that you uh, see how these things unfold. In chapter 11 of Leviticus, in verse 47, it says, To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. Kosher rules of the scriptures are a subset of this broader category of clean and unclean. Clean animals and unclean animals, right? So, we have our categories. We have life and death. We have good and evil. We have holy and common. We have clean and unclean. They are distinctions, not completely opposites in that sense. Certainly life and death are opposites. Good and evil are opposites. Holy and common are just a distinction. Clean and unclean, we will see, sometimes are opposites, but sometimes are just distinctions. Okay? So let's start with the holy and common real quick so I can get into the clean and unclean part. Holy refers to a person or an item, or a place, or a behavior. Notice, person, item, place, or behavior that is separated from the common and dedicated to God, or to His name, or to His glory, or to His reputation. In other words, something that is common can be set aside, made holy, in that sense. Now you know the Hebrew word for that. It's kadosh. Uh, the Greek word is hagios. And the Latin word you need to be familiar with. Because our English Bibles draw from that as well. Sanctus. So in the, in the Latin uh, mass. When they get to holy, holy, holy. They don't say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. They don't say uh, Hagias, Hagias, Hagias. They say Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. Same thing. We get our word sanctification and our word saints from the Latin, not from the Greek or the Hebrew. But it's the same idea. It's the idea of something that is separated, set apart, and the English word for that is for something to be holy. Okay? So, common, the distinction from the holy, refers to a person or a place or a behavior or an item that is of general use or ordinary. Now the word here has the idea of being untied. The etiology is to untie. If you are separating something in the ancient world uh, to put it somewhere, you would tie it together and set it apart, right? If it's untied, it's loose. We, you'll see this when you go to a store. You'll go somewhere and you want one of an item and they've still got them in the box. You don't want, you don't want the whole box. The box is set aside. You want just the item. So they open it up and take them out. It's untied. So it's not bad. It's just now regular use. Okay? You follow me with that? So the word common then refers to regular. The Hebrew word for that is kol, and the Greek word is koinos. 
Now that's where we get our koinonia fellowship, having something in common. And it's where we get in the Bible, when, uh, in the New Testament, when we talk about the Greek that they use, they use the koine Greek, the common Greek of the day. Okay? So it's not a bad word. The opposite of holy is not evil, and it's not unholy. The opposite or the complement to holy is common. So, the primary distinction then between holy and common is that the common may be used for multiple purposes, but the holy is solely dedicated to God and His purpose. So, we talk about the holy scriptures. We talk about marriage being holy, holy matrimony. Uh, These are different from common literature, which may be good or bad, right? And civil marriage, which again may be functional or dysfunctional, but they're not the same. You see that distinction? That's an important distinction. So, we are called to holiness, though some aspects of our life will remain common. Common, not secular. Because God is not absent from the common. God allows the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Rain is common. It is not bad. So it's, we tend to think in those other categories and we need to not do that. If we confuse the common with the secular, we're going to injure our faith and our experience. Now, Here's where there's a lot of verses and I just can't do them. So I'm just going to give you an example of some things. In some cases, a common thing may become holy. Because it's then dedicated to the Lord. So a person can take a house that they have and set that aside to the Lord And the scriptures tell the priest how to evaluate it. And then it now becomes kadosh. So it's possible for common things to become holy. Think about it. Uh, uh, that's, That's how a lot of things that built the tabernacle, they were common items that then were dedicated to the Lord and then created into the tabernacle and now it's holy. In the same way, some holy things can be made common. But this requires a substitution and a redemption. So, in, in, among uh, the Israelites and Jews today, they do a ceremony. We do our dedication of our children. They do a ceremony called the redemption of the firstborn. God killed the firstborn of Egypt. He said, your firstborn are mine. Everything that opens the womb is mine. Uh, you'll give me the animals, the firstborn of the animal. You'll give me all of those. Uh, you'll give me your firstborn. However, I'm taking the Levites in place of your children and you will redeem them. You'll give me money valued at the basis of the cost of the child and that will then redeem that child. So that child would have been holy unto the Lord, but now the child is redeemed. And you'll see a lot of times if something is to be redeemed, that's been dedicated, you have to add 20% to its value to acknowledge its status as having been holy. And then it comes back. So common things can become holy. 
Holy things in some cases become common, but whatever their status is, they are used in that status. You don't use a holy thing for common use, and you don't use a common thing for holy use. Uh, you have to make it holy first, right? Now, the Hebrew Bible does not have a category for unholy as opposed to holy. And that's why, if you check your Bibles, you will see the word unholy, if it's used, only in the New Testament. And this causes some difficulty because I believe it's not translated well. Because the word for unholy in most cases is a word for common. But if you say unholy, that immediately gives us a negative connotation to it. Okay? And that negative connotation is not the biblical worldview. It's kind of the American Christian worldview. So, holy and common. I've talked about that a lot. You should be relatively familiar with it. The one that's more difficult is the one I want to finish with and get you beginning to think about. And I know that gives you a headache. But that's, that's what learning is, getting a headache. I want you confused at a higher level of consciousness. I want you to have a headache. And then I want you to think through these things. And then you kind of have that aha, right? The aha will come down the, down the line, right? So, there's a distinction of clean and unclean. These distinctions are much better understood in Judaism than Christianity. Because Judaism has used them in relationship to the kosher laws. And so their experience of eating kosher, not eating kosher. Remember I talked about experience. If you don't have an experience, you don't get that. We, we have a much better understanding than most congregations of holy versus common because of our observance of Shabbat and the holy days, right? We have more of that kind of experience. Now, there are... Christians who have used the Lord's Day as a Sabbath, and they somewhat have the understanding of that category as well. But a lot of people have grown up where everything is going on seven days a week, and you know you just pick a time if you can to go to service, and that's it, right? And it's lost that sense of being kadosh. So clean and unclean is much more difficult for those of us who come out of the Christian tradition, because they were at one time associated with at least some of the sexual commandments, but we're rapidly depleting that concept as well. So let me give you definitions for clean and unclean. Clean refers to a person, an animal, a condition or a status which is acceptable and without contamination. And I'm going to talk about pollution or contamination. And in, in most Christian thinking, they talk about this ceremonial. I don't like that word ceremonial. Because people use the word ceremonial as if it's not real. Okay? Is baptism not real because it's ceremonial? No, it's spiritual. There's physical and spiritual. That's what we are. We're a combination of the physical created from the dust of the earth, breathed into by the breath of life, we live in this intersection of the physical and the spiritual, and therefore much of what is done in our religion and our faith encompasses both of those, and that's why we sometimes 
get confused because we do what the Greeks did and we make the spiritual good and the physical bad. Okay, that's not, that's not the way it should be. So, uh, the Hebrew word is uh, taher and it means bright or pure. The Greek word katharos, or katharos really, uh, means clean or pure. So something is clean, it's usable and acceptable. So I want to I want to um, uh, address this in really really common terms. Okay, you you go into a uh, uh, a washroom and you're going to wash your hands, and you will see towels that are used and dumped in a trash can, and those that are uh, still waiting to be used. Right. Uh, and in a sense, that's the category of clean and unclean at the physical side, right? These are appropriate for use. These are not appropriate for use. Now, what happens if you go in and there's nothing appropriate for use? You kind of look to see if there's something that you could use or, you know, right? Because one is avoided and one is used. And that's part of what this is about. Unclean, then, refers to a physical substance, condition, situation, or behavior that pollutes or defiles, and as a result, must be separated or avoided. So let's go back to my example, okay? You, there's, there's two very nice uh, towels ready to be used, a whole bunch of ones that are dirty, and the guy uh, before you the person before you grabs one of the clean ones. As he grabs it, or they grab it, they whisk the other one into the dirty pile. They do that and then throw that on there. They've kind of polluted your, your next towel for you, right? It's not the other way around. It's not like you can say, okay, take one of these dirty ones, touch the clean one, now they're clean. You got it? That which is on clean pollutes that which is clean. And that's a real important notion of what pollutes, what causes a problem. We don't think in those terms. We do with cleanliness, and we actually use the word clean and unclean, but we don't think of it in both physical and spiritual terms, and we should think of it in both those terms. Uh, So, Uh, The condition of being unclean may be accidental or intentional. In the case I talked about where the guy just whisked it over, that was unintentional. But a person could also intentionally do that, right? Uh, Secondly, the state of being unclean exists over various times. So, many passages say a person who comes in contact with this is unclean. They wash themselves. Now, What they're doing is baptizing themselves. The Bible talks about multiple types of baptism. One of these cleanings is a ceremonial dipping of the hands or dipping of the clothes, washing the clothes, and you remain unclean until sundown. Okay, So that could mean just a couple hours, or that could mean, if this happened the night before, almost 24 hours. Right? But it's You're unclean for the rest of the day. I call it a holy timeout. Okay? Uh, And and that's 
the notion here. Then there are some things where you are unclean for a, a week. And there are some situations where you are unclean until the circumstances and the situation changes. As in the case of leprosy. Okay? So the Bible talks about these in various ways. Both physical and spiritual. And it addresses these, I think, with commandments to cause us to experience, actually for Israel to experience, and us to see as they're a light to that, uh, how this category of clean and unclean uh, works. Now, so an unclean item or condition will pollute a common clean item, rendering it unclean, uh, and an unclean item can defile a holy item or a place and render it unclean. In that sense, it becomes unholy. So if the unclean comes in contact with the holy, it renders that holy uh, unclean and unworthy. This is why the priest is not allowed to enter a cemetery. Okay? He's only allowed to access the presence of the dead if it is his parents, or his unmarried sister. He can't just go to funerals. He can't just go to cemeteries, right? There's a very limited level, which indicates that there are levels of holiness. Now, that shouldn't make us surprised, right? Because the holy of holies, the most holy place, is going to be more holy than the holy place, right? So, these categories are very important for understanding what God is trying to express to us. Now, I can't go into detail on this, but I believe that this is an area where we have failed uh, to search the scriptures. Now, in part, this comes from an error that Christianity has, and that's the idea that all sin is equal. You hear this all the time. Well, all sins are equal. That's simply categorically untrue. Okay? Now, people say, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Absolutely. So, let me explain now. We're going to take these uh, eternal lights that we have. They're all at the same level, right? So, we're going to call them the glory of God. Okay? Anything that falls short of the glory of God, misses the mark, is sin. So all sin is sin. With me? <laughs> but, a sin that misses the mark at this level, just below the standard of the glory of God, and a sin that's all the way down there on the floor, are not equal. And the proof of that is that there are different punishments for different sins. Some sins, you're unclean, until sundown. Some sins, you're cut off from the people. Some sins, you're stoned. And I don't mean in the Colorado sense. You're dead, right? So the idea here is that if there are differences of categories of punishment, those sins are not equal. But all the sins fall short of the glory of God. Okay? So really important because if we teach our children that all sins are the same, then it doesn't matter what they do because we're sinners and we do sins. They've got to discern 
the more serious sins from the lighter sins. Not to say you can get by with the light ones, but to say these, you be very careful of going towards the gross sins. Okay? So, that's important. So, we have to understand holy and common, clean and unclean, which overlap and interact with each other. I'll talk about that later after we've had some experience with them. Uh, we have to try to study them. Uh, and the, when we tr- study them, the more difficult this becomes. When you try to read a book on what's clean and what's unclean and how you do this and do that, you get a headache real quick and you don't know what you're talking about, which is important uh, for what I'm about to say now. So I want you to turn to Acts 15, verse 13 to 20. This is a passage you're familiar with. Acts 15, verse 13 says, now this is, they're battling over what are we going to do with these Gentiles who have come into the faith? Do we make them do all the commandments? Do we make them do none of the commandments? What do we do, right? So it says, after they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first concerned himself by taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. See the call to holiness? The Gentiles, some of the Gentiles are being called to holiness. We're, we're from that group. With these words, the prophets agree. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That means beyond Israel. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore... It's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Why? Because if they threw all of these commandments on us, we would choke. We choke now, right? They choked too. I mean, that was part of their problem. Going to put a burden on them that we can't bear, right? But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. An idol is unclean. And therefore, things that are dedicated to an idol become unclean. That's why you can't eat food that's dedicated to an idol. Okay? From fornication, that's the Levitical sexual requirements. From that which is strangled, this is something that dies not for the purpose of food. So it's not butchered for food. It just dies. Roadkill and other things, you just can't eat that. And from blood, that goes all the way back to Noah. Okay? Separating life and death. The life is in the blood. You separate the blood, right? So they write them the letters and tell them uh, they're going to do this. And he says, Moses is read in the synagogues every week. So we're going to give them these first four essentials for them to understand. And when they get those categories, they will then begin to see with spiritual eyes how they shall live in their kind of parallel to Israel in that context. We don't live exactly the way Israel does. They're under a covenant with God. But we parallel that. They are a light to the Gentiles. We are a provocation to, their, to those who are unbelieving and unpracticing in, in Israel in that context. So, I believe that the Torah was given to Israel to be done rather than studied. I get in real trouble with Old Testament professors when I say this. This wasn't intended to be studied. 
and go, oh, no, it's supposed to. No, no, it's, of course it's supposed to be studied. But it's not supposed to be studied in an academic sense. It's supposed to be read and done. And read and done. And read and done so that you understand things. Okay? Because it is experience. Now, this is the major difference between the, the world's worldviews and the biblical worldview. The world's worldview says, what is my experience and what does it mean to me? And if enough of us have the same experience, then that experience is normal. And if you're having an experience that we're not having, you may be abnormal. That's kind of the way the world does it. The biblical worldview is, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it says, think in these categories and now you will obey me and that will give you a guided experience. So I'm going to talk about a guided experience real quickly. It's the one I always use in the marriage and family class. So my son comes to me when he's a young kid and he says, Dad, why does water run downhill? Now, I could explain mass, attraction, and gravity and get him to memorize that. And what would he know? He would know mass and gravity attraction. Right? But he wouldn't know why water runs downhill. So, to do the biblical approach would be this way. This is a little more eastern, a little more... uh, Follow me, grasshopper, I'll show you what to do, right? So I say, run up that hill. So he runs up the hill. That's a commandment. Then he gets up the hill. I said, now run back down. He runs back down. And I say, what do you know? It's easier to run downhill than it is uphill. That's why water runs downhill. Now he has an experience based on commandments. Experience based on truth is a godly experience that we should be having, an experience that we have randomly, that we then use a theory to try to explain what it is, is the human wisdom approach. You see that difference? That's a big difference. That's why the commandments are so important. So he said, so we are to learn the distinction between the holy and the common by keeping Shabbat and the holy days. Uh, And we even see them different than the holy days or the holidays of the culture. I don't see the 4th of July and Yom Kippur as the same. I don't see our anniversary the same as Sukkot, right? There are personal set-apart days, there are cultural set-apart days, and then there are holy days. And I must know that everybody's got an anniversary, everybody's got a birthday, everybody's got that, right? But Yom Kippur is different. Shabbat is different. You see that difference? That's what we want our kids to experience. But we have to experience it first. So we separate ourselves also by not eating food sacrificed to idols. I'm going to talk about uh, something I think I've mentioned uh, several times to you, but I want to uh, reinforce it. If I go into a Chinese restaurant, and in that restaurant they have a Buddha or some other statue, and at the foot of that statue there is money, food, or incense burning, I know that that is an actual 
offering to that God. I don't belong to that God. I can't eat there. Now, if they have a Buddha over in the corner because it's decoration, I don't care about that. But if they have actually sacrificed to that God for their blessing, I am not part of that and I separate myself from that framework. I grew up in a time when Christians had to separate themselves from TV because the TV was an idol. But we don't have that anymore. We're multicultural now. So we simply have to... uh, I don't... I don't do anything to the restaurant. I don't stand out in front saying, false gods, false gods. I don't do that. I just, I am kadosh. I can't go in there. Just like the priest can't go in the cemetery. I'm to separate myself from that. That's the food sacrifice to idols. Okay? So these things become part of our experience when we know what we're looking for and how to address that. We also have to separate ourselves from sexuality in the way the world does sexuality. And our sexuality is male and female sexuality in the context of marriage. They have a, their own sexuality that's highly individualized, oriented to sexual orientation, and a number of categories that are not biblically sanctioned or bound. So, uh, be careful of that. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm almost done. I want to give you two passages. I'm, I don't have time to go into them in detail, but I will allude to them and let you think about them, and we'll pick it up the next time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 1 through 13, and I'm not going to read it because you know this passage. This is where the guy is, uh, has his father's wife, and they haven't, and Paul says, hey, we're unleavened. We're holy. Get this guy out. Remember what is unclean. That which pollutes. The presence of that person engaged in gross sin. In the midst of a congregation that is allowing that to happen. Pollutes the congregation. And Paul says, get him out of there. When he has repented, he brings him back in the second chapter. Because that uncleanness in the context of that which is holy. Violates and pollutes the holy. And God will judge it. First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, He who defiles the temple of God, him God will destroy. Right? Then when we get to chapter 7, we have a similar notion uh, in First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. He says, I say, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. For the unbelieving... Uh, The woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. In this case, where the holy and the common are married, and the common one is willing to stay in a non not an unclean context, which would be a problem, okay? then for the sake of the children, God accepts that marriage and sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. These are really important. Paul, these are all New Testament passages that demand that we understand these categories before we interpret them. And so it's, it's critical that we begin to think about this. 
So I want us to begin to the identification of these categories in our own lives and in our own experiences. And I want us to begin to share these with each other, what we've learned so that we can together increase our understanding and grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And so we can pass this on to our children. In other words, I think it's time we have done a lot with holy and common. We have to start seriously thinking about the clean and the unclean. There are too many biblical texts that address these categories that for us are unapproachable because we don't experientially understand those categories. Uh, It's like trying to explain to a blind person colors. Now, a person who's seen and then becomes blind, colors make sense to them. The experience of holiness and commonness, the experience of clean and unclean are critical for our learning and our retention and the passing of this on to our children. Let's pray.